Welcome to Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers with true crime masters and New York Times bestselling authors, Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge. In this episode, the dramatic conclusion to the Boston Strangler as Casey Sherman comes face to face with the lead suspect in his aunt's murder amid new scientific evidence and the discovery of the last letters written by Albert DeSalvo and read only here on this podcast. And now, Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge. The year is 2001, and for the first time in nearly 40 years, forensic scientists have discovered new DNA evidence in the Boston Strangler case, one of the most notorious murder cases in American history. From June 1962 to January of 1964, 11 women were strangled in the greater Boston area. It was as if Jack the Ripper had returned, this time to Boston. Surprisingly, no one was ever charged or convicted in any of the Strangler murders. In 1965, a sexual predator named Albert DeSalvo, already in jail for other crimes, confessed to the 11 murders and added two more to the list. 69-year-old Mary Brown, who was stabbed to death and not strangled, and 85-year-old Mary Mullen, who dropped dead of a heart attack in her apartment at 1435 Commonwealth Avenue in Boston. Many investigators believe that if DeSalvo was responsible for any of the strangler deaths, it was Mary Mullen, as DeSalvo was a burglar who had broken into the apartment to rob it. Mary Mullen caught him in the act and died of sheer fright. I'm continuing to pour over the case files at my desk in a newsroom of a Boston TV station. An all-star forensics team, led by George Washington University professor James Stars, has just announced they've found major evidence. Two mitochondrial DNA sequences of my Aunt Mary Sullivan's killer. And that DNA does not match Albert DeSalvo. So, who killed Mary? Who, at 19 years old, is believed to be the youngest and final victim of the Boston Strangler murders. I review Mary's case file again and focus on a former Boston University student who police identified as the prime suspect in her murder back in 1964. Mary Sullivan, a petite, raven-haired Irish beauty, had only recently moved to 44A Charles Street in the city's affluent Beacon Hill neighborhood, when on the evening of January 4, 1964, her new roommates arrived home from work and discovered her lifeless body in a bedroom. At first, they thought she was sleeping. The women called out her name several times until one of them summoned the courage to enter the room. She saw that Mary had been propped up in a sitting position on the bed. Two scarves and a nylon stocking were wrapped tightly around her neck. The killer's bodily fluid was left dripping from her open mouth. Mary had also been sexually assaulted with a broomstick. The handle was protruding out of her body for all to see. Since the murder was committed on January 4th, the killer showed that he also had a macabre sense of humor. He left a Happy New Year card placed by her left foot. Investigators had identified a prime suspect in her case shortly after the crime. He was a college student who had been dating one of Mary's roommates. The girlfriend told police that her apartment key had disappeared from her keychain the night before Mary was killed, a night the roommate had spent with her boyfriend. The young man was brought in and given two polygraph tests, which he failed. 
The only witness to the crime identified him as the man she had seen inside the apartment around the approximate time Mary was killed. The suspect quit school and disappeared once Albert DeSalvo confessed to the Boston Strangler murders in 1965. The phone rings in the newsroom, and I pick it up. It's somebody who claims to have new information about my aunt's murder. Now, I've been getting a lot of those calls. One guy had called me and said, Ted Kennedy's the Boston Strangler, and I have proof. Now, I expected a similar call here, but I was wrong. The caller is from northern New England, and he says he works with a guy at a local bar who may have killed Mary. He gives me the man's name. It's the same name of the prime suspect in Mary's murder from 1964. For the sake of this podcast, we're going to call him Preston Moss. Now, I had been working to develop a motive in Mary's murder for several months. Moss was an insanely jealous guy, and he thought that his girlfriend, Mary's roommate, was cheating on him. She was. The girlfriend was dating a soldier behind Moss's back, and he wanted proof. On January 4th, 1964, he used her key to get inside the apartment. Now, he doesn't know that Mary is also moving in her belongings that day. She catches him, rifling through the girlfriend's belongings, and an argument ensues. That argument turns violent. Mary Sullivan is a tough Irish girl from a tough Irish family. She can give as good as she gets, but he's stronger than she is. Moss kills her with three ligatures, just as he's read about in the newspapers. Then, he decorates the crime scene to make it look like the work of the so-called Boston Strangler. Moss is scared shitless, the caller tells me. He knows what's going on with the DNA, so... How can I help? Get him to confess, I tell him, and get it on tape. Now, I can't use it in a court of law, but I can use it. Even better, get me his DNA. I'll try, but the guy is meticulous, the caller explains. When he uses a glass, he washes it out. The same thing with food. Wait for your opportunity, I tell him. Take your time and don't try to force anything. And most of all, Be careful. After the call, the restaurant worker shadows Moss around the bar until one day he snags a beer mug with the suspect's DNA on the rim and sends it to Professor Stars in Washington, D.C. The mug is wrapped in a brown paper bag. The so-called bar spy has been warned against placing it in a plastic bag because it could build up with condensation and contaminate the evidence. Professor Stars and his team examine the beer mug and they find DNA. In fact, they find about 20 different DNA profiles on it. It's the dirtiest glass they've ever seen. Professor Stars asks the bar spy to get a hair sample instead and urges him to get a new dishwasher for the bar. Undeterred, the spy goes back to work. A few weeks later, he plucks a few strands of hair from Moss's ball cap and sends it to the forensic team. This time, it's a partial match to the mitochondrial DNA found on Mary Sullivan's body. I bring this information to authorities in Massachusetts, but because it was obtained privately without law enforcement involvement, they don't want to hear it. At this point, 
I have no choice but to confront Preston Moss myself. But how can I do it? I could just show up in the woods where he lives and introduce myself. But there's no telling what his reaction might be. He could take out a shotgun, shoot me dead, and bury me somewhere in the mountains where no one will find me. No, I need to meet him in a public place. I hear that he works part-time as a golf instructor, so I book myself a lesson under a different name. I then hop into my Chevy Blazer and I head north. As I chew up the miles from Boston to New Hampshire's North Country, I think about all that my mother has gone through, and I wonder if the final answer to her enduring and painful question lay ahead of me. The golf course is right off the highway. I haven't played golf in my entire life, but at least I looked the part. Khaki shorts, golf hat, and a golf shirt. I'm wearing dark shades and I've let my beard grow out, hoping that Moss won't immediately recognize me from my TV appearances. Moss pulls up in a golf cart. Are you Wayne Rose? He asks. Yes, I am. Well, hop in. I'll take you to tee off. We arrive to the tee box and I get out. My name's not Wayne Rose, I tell him. My name is Casey Sherman. Moss is clearly startled. It's as if the ghost of Christmas past has come back to haunt him. I'd like to ask you some questions about my Aunt Mary's murder. Well, I'm not talking without my attorney present, he responds nervously. But he keeps talking, and soon I hear him begin to stutter. With that, I'm immediately taken back to something Mary's roommate had told police. A few months after my aunt's murder, she got a crank call from a man with a pronounced stutter who told her that he was going to do to her what he did to that married bitch. Preston, just tell me what you were doing the day she was killed, I ask him. I, I remember it vividly. I, I, I was watching college football on television with my grandfather and my mother at our home. Now I assume that your grandfather and your mother have both passed on and can't confirm this? Sadly, that's the case, he replies. Moss then reaches out to shake my hand and says he's sorry. I take the handshake, not knowing what else to do. All the while, I'm thinking, are these the hands that murdered my dear Aunt Mary? Finally, I say, look, I don't want your apology. If you murdered my Aunt Mary Sullivan, you'll live with that, and you'll be judged by a power greater than me and much greater than law enforcement. I say my piece, release my grip, and walk away, never to see Moss again. Hey, Casey. Like our fans who tune in here on Saint Sinners and Serial Killers, we're all about truth. Working on our projects, I need a boost sometimes. I love my coffee, but I'm really loving these true lifestyle drinks. Me too, Dave. There are six different flavors for every activity. They're gluten and GMO-free, organic, vegan, and there's no artificial sweeteners or additives. They're clean, and they contain all sorts of vitamins and nutrients, and they're damn tasty. You know, True's founder, Jack McNamara, is a former pro hockey player, and he created True because he was looking for healthy energy drinks that wouldn't make you crash. 
I've been loving Energy, the Orange Mango Wake Up Blend, as well as Focus, the Apple Kiwi Brain Blend. Jack and his team have scientifically engineered some game-changing beverages, and I'm working several of them into my daily routine. And I'm making them part of my lifestyle, too. True drinks for true crime fans. Go to drinktrue.com and use the code SAINTS to get 30% off your purchase. Now, back to Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers. Preston Moss claimed that he had been watching college football on television at the approximate time that Mary Sullivan was killed. But no college football game was played or televised on January 4th, 1964. The Sullivan family finally has closure and the case sits dormant for years until a surprising new twist turns this notorious case on its head again in the summer of 2013. The Suffolk County District Attorney, along with the Massachusetts Attorney General and the Boston Police Commissioner, make a startling announcement. They found a seminal stain on the blanket where Mary Sullivan's body was found. Cold case investigators trail a nephew of Albert DeSalvo at a job site and swipe a water bottle he's used. They also obtained a warrant to exhume Albert DeSalvo's body once again. I'm driving home from Boston that evening, and I get a call from Suffolk County District Attorney Dan Connolly. He's requesting a meeting with me the next morning. I'm startled by the request. It's been more than a decade since I had any contact with law enforcement about this case. But now they're asking to meet with me instead of following the path that had been laid down by their predecessors years before when they refused to help my family find answers. I enter the room and look into the eyes of these investigators, and I see the determination that I had found lacking before. I also know that they have something definitive to share. Methodically, these men walk me through each step of the investigation, educating me on the advances of DNA technology since the time of my ardent pursuit for Mary's killer. As an investigative journalist, I go where the evidence takes me. Like me, they too had questions about DeSalvo's guilt, questions that could only be answered through the unbiased prism of modern science. They show me how DNA evidence from my aunt's crime scene was preserved and tested. They showed me how they connected that evidence to a male relative of Albert DeSalvo with a 99.9% assurance. And they talked to me about Mary with sensitivity and care, as if her murder had only occurred yesterday, not a half century ago. Dan Connolly faced reporters and asked me to stand by his side. There was no forensic evidence to link Albert DeSalvo to Mary Sullivan's murder until today. Advances in the sensitivity of DNA testing have allowed us to make a familial match between biological evidence recovered from the crime scene and a suspect in Mary Sullivan's murder. That suspect is Albert DeSalvo. Yesterday, a Suffolk Superior Court judge authorized the exhumation of DeSalvo's remains for confirmatory testing that we expect will prove DeSalvo's guilt once and for all. Well, we didn't know it was going to be a dead man. Remember, it was an unknown sample. So, I mean, it, it could have uh, pointed to somebody else, and then we might very well have had a very viable case against another individual. But, you know, uh, it's always important to give closure to families, uh, whether or not the perpetrator is deceased or, or, or alive. 
Um, uh, I've lived with Mary's memory every day, my whole life. And um, I didn't know, nor did my mother know, that other people were living with her memory as well. And it's amazing to me today to understand that people really did care about what happened to my aunt. The emotional weight of the moment is overwhelming for me, and the information is a lot to unpack. My Aunt Mary should be enjoying her grandchildren now and reflecting on a life well-lived. Instead, she's frozen in time in 1964, when she was just 19 years old. And now we have two competing DNA investigations with vastly different results. The team led by Professor James Stars, Dr. Henry Lee, and pathologist Michael Baden had found two DNA sequences, seminal fluid, on Mary Sullivan's remains. Neither of those samples had matched Albert DeSalvo, and one of the samples proved to be a partial match to the man who had been identified as the prime suspect in her murder back in 1964. DeSalvo had also told his psychiatrist, Dr. Ames Roby, that he had visited some Boston Strangler crime scenes in the hours after police had arrived, as he was fascinated and completely obsessed with the case. Since the Strangler murder scenes were never secured by police and news reporters could come and go as they pleased, was it possible for DeSalvo to gain access to Sullivan's apartment after her murder and while evidence was still being collected? Could DeSalvo and the suspect known as Preston Moss have killed together? Once again, my focus returns to Albert DeSalvo, and I know that he had confessed and then later recanted his confession twice. I also unearthed dozens of letters written by DeSalvo from his cell at Walpole State Prison to a family in Braintree, Massachusetts, shortly before his murder. Now, these letters have never been made public before until this podcast. Dear Barbara, I'm just getting around to writing you. Not because of any fault of mine, but because I'm going through a hell of a lot right now on many matters and problems. It's a hassle. However, I can handle it. (laughs) I've got to. In case you'd like to know, I'm not in here for rape or murder. Just armed robbery, and for that, I got life. Things didn't work out because of legal problems, so things are now out on a limb. In time, I'll answer all, all your questions you ask of me as long as it's possible. I like being sincere. I want most of all for someone to see me as I really am and not what I mean out to be. Let us tell a story within themselves. So what story was DeSalvo attempting to tell? Did he confess to the murders not because he was guilty, but because he was already incarcerated on unrelated crimes and had no means to support his family? In this letter, written just two weeks before he was murdered in the prison infirmary, the so-called Boston Strangler once again tries to clear his name and reveal a high level of corruption surrounding one of the biggest murder cases in American history. Again, these letters have never been made public before, until this podcast. Dear Barbara and family, no, I haven't heard from my children, but I'm not worried anymore. In a few weeks, I'll set up a trust fund for them. I've been quite busy as I'm still reading contracts for the book and the movie I'm having made of me. To think I had to go to prison to be a millionaire. 
I'm finally ready to tell the truth. I'm over my head with work and book writing and legal matters. The story I'm getting ready will be a bombshell. Everyone will want to get their hands on it because it comes once in a lifetime. Something really big is going to happen, but I don't wish to say anything more about it right now. But I'll see what I can do to clear my name of it. I've been used in the past by these so-called big people. Now it's my turn. I'll be telling the truth. Something that Senator Brooks and a lot of other big names don't know how to do. In time, you'll understand what I'm saying or trying to say. I'm going to drop a bombshell. I'm sick and tired of people using me. They did me wrong. And I haven't gotten a penny from it yet. Albert DeSalvo never got a chance to drop that bomb. On the night of his murder, November 25th, 1973, DeSalvo feared for his life and faked an illness so that he'd be placed in the Walpole Prison Infirmary, the safest unit in the state penitentiary. It turns out it wasn't as safe as they had hoped. DeSalvo's killer, identified by former prison guards to me as notorious mob hitman Vincent Jimmy the Bear Flummy, the brother of Whitey Bulger cohort Stevie Flummy, got through six security checkpoints with a sharp blade. Flummy found DeSalvo lying on his hospital bed and gutted him, stabbing him 19 times in the chest. Covered in DeSalvo's blood, Flemmy managed to get back safely to his cell, once again through security checkpoints, and no one saw a thing. So who paid for the hit? We have since learned that DeSalvo had revealed his intentions of blowing the lid off the Strangler case to the most deadly man imaginable, his former cellmate George Nasser, who many believe is the real killer. Albert DeSalvo was silenced forever, but the mystery surrounding his role in the Boston Strangler case still endures almost 50 years after his death. After the publication of my book, Search for the Strangler, a middle-aged woman approaches me at a book signing. She shows me a photograph of George Nasser, one that appears in my book. I was 15 years old and living in Cambridge in May 1963. I was home alone, and this man, George Nasser, approached my front door claiming that my parents had ordered a furniture delivery. I knew no such order had been made. I tried closing the door, and he stuck his arm in. At this moment, our dog, a German shepherd, started barking. George Nasser pulled his arm away from my door and ran away down the street. The next day, I learned that a young woman named Beverly Samens was strangled just a few blocks away on University Road. I know her killer was George Nasser. A poem that Albert DeSalvo wrote was discovered inside his prison cell shortly after his murder. It reads, Here is the story of the strangler yet untold. The man who claims he killed 13 women, young and old. He struck within the light of day, not leaving one clue astray. Young and old, their lips are sealed. Their secret of death never revealed. Today, he sits in a prison cell. Deep inside, only a secret he can tell. People everywhere are still in doubt. Is the strangler in prison or roaming about? 
Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers is a joint production of Mudhouse Media and Fort Point Media. This episode is brought to you with thanks to our sponsor, Work Local in Marshfield, Massachusetts. Special thanks to Kevin Lassett as the voice of Albert DeSalvo and Annie Powell as the voice of The Woman. Music in this episode was provided by Chris Spagone. You can reach Chris on Instagram at chrisalaneousart. For more on the Mudhouse Media Podcast Network, visit mudhousemedia.com. That's Mudhouse with two Ds. And for the latest updates on their podcast and all of the writing and film projects of Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge, please visit fortpointmedia.com.